Hello everybody, I'm your host Hal Curtis and I'd like to welcome you to The Space Industry by SatSearch, where we share stories about the companies taking us into orbit. In this podcast, we delve into the opinions and expertise of the people behind the commercial space organizations of today who could become the household names of tomorrow. Before we get started with the episode, remember you can find out more information about the suppliers, products and innovations that are mentioned in this discussion on the global marketplace for space at satsearch.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Space Industry Podcast. I'm joined today by Charles Miller, the co-founder and CEO of Link. Link is a name that you're probably familiar with in the industry, judging from the typical listeners to this podcast. But Link is essentially a business looking to bring the power of space to the 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 satellite phone industry. Building cell phone towers in space is, is one, one way that I understand the company describes it. Charles has been very experienced in the commercial space industry for a, a number of years, and he can mention more on that. He's previously worked at Nanorex and has been a NASA senior advisor for commercial space, which obviously he has plenty to plenty of knowledge and expertise to share with us. We're going to talk today specifically about the satellite to phone application area and industry. But firstly, I just wanted to say hello, Charles, welcome to the podcast and see if there was anything you'd like to add to give some context listeners on the discussion today. Hi, Hal. Thank you for having me. I'm great to talk to your audience. And I've been in the space industry, the commercial space industry for over 30 years before commercial space was cool. And for a while, I was like the redheaded stepchild in the space industry where every, I could point out all the different ways commercial space could solve some of the problems and nobody wanted to hear it. But uh, so I've thought deeply about a lot of the issues. I think it's really exciting and I want to encourage everybody in the industry to be more effective and to help them succeed. So I'm happy to share some thoughts and insights during this call. Excellent. Thank you. Just to be clear. Commercial space is cool now, right? Commercial space is very cool now. It is the new thing. But a couple decades ago, even a decade ago, it, there was it was the threat, and you were not welcome at the party. <laughs> I'm very glad to that things have changed, and I mean that that's a great introduction to our discussion today. Like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the satellite to phone sector of the industry now, the or sat to phone for short, and the sat to phone sector is getting increasingly competitive. I think it's well known that there's a huge potential market out there for of the unconnected or poorly connected potential users, and Link is obviously very active in this sector. So I wondered if just to set the scene a little bit, you could give our listeners a bit of an overview of how the market is structured and maybe share some statistics on how many people are not connected and the demographics of this market that's addressable. Well, I'm happy to do so. Let me start from first principles for your audience. There is, I've identified three target audiences for satellite services where there's billions of customers. One is GPS, position navigation timing, mostly by GPS, but other satellite systems. Another is weather. Billions of people use weather services and they get weather as help by space. And the third one is communications. Now of the three sectors, each of them billions, there's only one of them where people are used to paying for the service. People get free weather services, right? People get free and location timing services through GPS or other timing services. So they don't pay for it. It's really hard to get people to pay for something they don't want to pay for. 
communications is a multi-trillion dollar industry that people are willing to pay for. And so solving a problem using satellites is really very clearly analytically the largest target market to go after if you can find a problem that to solve they're using satellites. So that's what we that's the kind of thinking we started with. And that's the type of thinking that anybody getting in the space business is like what market are you going after trying to figure out a problem you're solving. So we in in going to more specifically to what you asked, there's over 5 billion people on the planet who have a mobile phone, a standard ordinary mobile phone in their pocket. It's supposedly 5.4 billion people right now. So it's a large addressable market. And I think it's common sense. Most people don't think about it, but you're not always connected by your mobile phone. There's black spots. And the truth is only about 10% of the Earth's surface, which is huge, has connectivity to a ground-based cell tower or to a Wi-Fi hotspot, the two ways your phone connects. That means 90% of the planet is disconnected. About 75% of the Earth's surfaces is seas, oceans. But it, it turns out that only 25% of the Earth's landmass has connectivity. Now, it's a lot of that is Siberia or Antarctica or Greenland. But there's a lot of disconnectivity even in different countries. And so that's part of the problem. And then the other part is even when you have connectivity, natural disasters or even human-caused disasters take out your connectivity and you'd like backup. So that's the problem. Our research shows that about 15% of those 5 billion people with mobile phones are disconnected at any given point in time, which the mobile wireless industry is very proud of the fact they have 85% connectivity. Right, And people come and go into rural remote communities and have small black spots. And some countries have better connectivity than others. Here in the United States, the connectivity is over 90%. In other markets, it's less than the 85% connectivity. It's 15%. You think, that's not that bad. But 15% times 5 billion is 750 million people at any point in time are disconnected. So that's a big problem. That is a wonderful big problem for somebody who thinks like an entrepreneur. And because anything multiplied by 750 million is a large number, if there are people willing to pay, but it's even larger than that. So if you, we've done the research, that's what any point in time people are disconnected, that about 40% of people who have a mobile phone report, they never have an extended period of disconnectivity any point in time in the year. That means 60% do. And that's, these are people probably, there's probably a lot of people who live in suburbs or cities, but they go traveling on roads or go visit friends or family, or they like hunting or fishing or hiking or sailing, and they're disconnected. And I think most people, they were a little bit about it, and then they forget about it because that's just the way it is. We'll just have to be fine. But that's six, six billion people, 60% of 5 billion, is, I'm sorry, 3 billion people ex experience some extended period of disconnectivity during the year. So this is the problem that we set about to solve. The reason for this is people, we want to explore everywhere. We don't want to be constrained to where you have a phone. And the, But the reason you can't extend 
connectivity, mobile wireless everywhere is the cost of cell towers. It's really not just the CapEx building them, but it's surprisingly expensive to operate cell towers. And there's a bunch of operational costs in cell towers, including power, real estate. You got to put security around the towers. Kids crawl on them in first world, so you have to have security. But in emerging markets, they tear down the towers and sell it for scrap. And then you, a lot of towns and cities, they get, they charge fees and taxes on the cell towers to pay for their government services. So operational costs, and then the backhaul to the towers in these remote and rural regions, it can be very expensive. So it's just, it, it can be very expensive to operate them. And satellite cell towers are all fixed costs. We don't pay for security. We don't pay taxes. We don't pay for power. We bring our own power. So it's all fixed costs, zero marginal costs. So our operational costs are about four orders of magnitude lower than a traditional ground-based tower. So it's a it's that creates a huge opportunity for we can fill in all the black spots at orders of magnitude lower costs and still make money. Right. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great introduction to the topic. Yeah, I think uh, this the loss of connectivity is a problem everybody can relate to. We've all needed connection on our mobile phone at some point when it's important and we haven't had it. And as you say, we treat it as a problem that comes and goes and it's no big deal. And the industry is proud of the 85% connectivity time, but 15% of your waking hours disconnected can be uh, could be a problem for you if certain things are happening. And yeah, Really understand the uh, the way you've laid out the cost benefit analysis there comparing the uh, the ground based cell towers. So thank you for that. It was uh, four orders of magnitude lower operational costs is astounding. You think of these cell towers as fixed points that need nothing more than a bit of power, but obviously that's not the case. Thank you for the introduction to that chart. So next, I guess to dive into the technology now. Many innovations have been proven in space in the last few years, and particularly in the low Earth orbit or low Earth orbits. But a, a consumer technology like satellite to phone requires both performance and reliability. Importantly, reliability and reliability, as you've mentioned, is one of the key defining factors of, of a mobile service, mobile connectivity service. So I wonder if you could take us through the hardware and software that is required to deliver your service or a service satellite to phone connectivity, particularly in places with little or no existing coverage. How does it actually work for the user? First of all, let me congratulate you. Performance and reliability are both important. And the insight, one of the first insights is once you get satellites in orbit and get work out the technical kinks, they can be very reliable. They are not, they don't get hit by hurricanes, right? And they don't have people ripping them down to sell it for scrap and they don't have people digging up cables. So they can be very reliable uh, after you get through the early technical development risk and buy down that risk. And it comes down, the key issue is performance. So it's, it's the first thing is, can you close the link two ways? And conventional wisdom was wrong. People, it's just physics of the link budget. And it's straightforward if you have people who both understand the mobile phone and satellites and what you can do with the processing gain that's in mobile phones and technology today. So that was straightforward. We figured that out first. The other insight here is you want to leverage commercial off-the-shelf technology, the hardware, put that in the satellites. The insight of how we do it to, is we take the existing base station software that's 3GPP standard globally. 
this is it's like the TCP/IP of mobile phones. It's 3GPP global standards. Put the software in the satellite. Two things break once you close the link. Two things break with that standard. One is you the satellite has to be in low Leo to get any real significant performance, right? You bring the satellite down in low Leo to get much you get stronger link margins two ways. And you get much more capacity per unit of spectrum by bringing down a low Leo, and you get low latency. So all these benefits to low Leo that you want to optimize for. But two things break. One is Doppler shift, and the other is time delay. So we invented the technology in 2017 of Doppler compensation and tricking the phones into accepting to the delay. Right, intercepting the extended range that is uh, that causes the delay, and the phones are not supposed to talk to a tower beyond 35 kilometers in GSM or 2G, or 120 kilometers in LTE, and they're designed to break if they detect they're beyond that distance. There's a very specific way they detect that, and if the cell tower doesn't cooperate, you can make the phone think you're actually close, but you're just a little bit of congestion. And the phones are supposed to tolerate congestion. But you miss what's called a couple time slots in the frames, the time frames that are coming to the phone. And the phone says, oh, it's just congestion. It's not range. They think you can get the phone to think it's just congestion in the network, and they're supposed to tolerate that. So we do Doppler compensation at the satellite such that the phone doesn't see more Doppler than the phone can tolerate. And the, and the delay trick and backward compatible with all phones. This works, this insight, this is patented in 55 countries now, works on all 2G, 3G, 4G, and 5G. And we expect it to work in the future on 6G and above. So this is a fundamental breakthrough that took us a couple years to figure this out. And what this means is your phone without any change, not even software change, will stay connected. So your SMS app, on your phone with linked service will work. So you don't even need to download a new app. Now, are there some interesting use cases where you could we could create an app to take advantage of this? Yes. We're, we have a service called LinkCast, where you get basically free weather data services no matter where you are that's broadcast directly to phones. Yes, that's an interesting use case. You'd have to have an app for that, or maybe an app. One of your app, favorite apps is updated to add a LinkCast API. But your SMS app that's already in your phone will work. So that's how it'll work. You might, when you roam into a remote area, you might get a just like when you're traveling internationally, it'll be a roaming experience. When I get off, when I travel to Europe from the United States and I get off the plane. I'll get this message pop up on my phone. It says, you're now here. It costs you 10 bucks a day if you use it. So I'll get a welcome message. We'll do the same thing. And so the, it'll work the way your phone works, and it'll be backward compatible with all these phones. Brilliant. So really seamless on the user's yes. behalf is the aim. Got it. Okay. That's great. And that was intentional. We held to that, that it has to be seamless. It has to be no friction or as min- uh, almost no friction, and and that's the way to bring this to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. We we see this across all sorts of applications in the space industry that the end users want a result or performance, and they're agnostic as to how they get there. So, actually, nobody cares about satellites. 
If you're a satellite entrepreneur, you got to get over this if anybody cares you have a satellite, right? They don't care. They just want their phone to be connected everywhere. They don't care. In fact, a lot of people, it's apocryphal. A lot of people say, why would I need satellites? I get I get GPS on my phone. So they don't understand what they just said. So people don't care. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is an opportunity for you, like I say, to make this transition seamless. You mentioned that the use of the Leo was very important for a few reasons, including maximizing the capacity per unit spectrum. And I'm, I was interested in h- how the spectrum is apportioned to organizations like you. So the, you know, the, what's the role of regulators in balancing the use of the spectrum? Now, this there seems to be lots of companies that can or could directly compete for access to the same spectrum in, in an area already use mobile phones. How does this work? How do you meet this at link? Do you need a license for each country or what happens if users travel? You just mentioned yourself traveling to Europe. How does all of this aspect of the service work? So great question. The answer is yes, anybody can do this and no, it's not easy. So the, we thought, I thought about this years ago when we figured out you could do satellite direct to phone back in 2015 and 2016, 2017. It was very clear you could take many approaches. You could get some satellite spectrum and persuade the phone manufacturers to put it in the phone. You could do, you know, go try to apply for spectrum, which is be very difficult. Most of the spectrum is already applied for. And the insight came was like, MNOs around the world already have spectrum. It's already fun. We don't have to put spectrum in the phone if we use existing spectrum in the phone. This is almost exclusively licensed to mobile network operators around the world. And so we decided our whole strategy, and we think this is the right strategy, at least it is for us, is to partner with mobile network operators around the world. They they have the spectrum rights. You're absolutely right. Regulators are critical and MNOs are critical. And we got to have both for linked strategy. And But it's not easy. Let me tell you why it's hard, right? You have to solve really five it may appear to be easy on the surface, and the strategy is it makes a lot of sense, but there's five barriers you have to overcome to execute this strategy. First of all, you need to have satellites that work on that spectrum. You have to optimize for that spectrum. So your satellite cell towers, we're using UHF from 617 and 960 in our current operational satellite cell towers in space. We have the world's three only commercially licensed operational satellite cell towers are our three satellites. They operate from 617 to 960. So you have to have the hardware. Second, you need to have the software that I just described, the Doppler compensation and the timing that we developed. You need to develop that. That's patented in 55 countries. We don't think there's any way around our patents. Uh, third, you need to have MNO partnerships. They're the ones with the license. They're the ones that are going to sub-license that spectrum to you. And so you got to get a do a business deal with MNOs. And so that's the third thing. There's two more. You need to have an operator's license. So we're the world's only company that has a satellite to cell tower to standard phone. Op- license in the world, operator's license from the FCC. We got it last September. That is easier said than done. Many people predicted we couldn't get it, and there was people opposed us to getting it and held up all these risks. And the FCC, in their wisdom, 
decided to give us the license anyways because we had proven over several years that we could operate without causing harmful interference. And it wasn't like we just hand waved. We we showed the theory, and then we had done several years of testing and proved we could do it, didn't cause harmful interference, testing in the United States and overseas. And then the third, the fifth and last thing is, I think you pointed to, you need to have market access. So it's not just, you'll, FCC gives us the operator's license to operate in orbit, but then on a country-by-country basis, we need to get, like, the transmit down into a country, we need to get their permission. And so the key insight here is, yes, those regulators are critical. Some of them are not going to want us to operate in that. I just had a story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday where the reporter wanted to ask me about China. And, they, and so they, the key issue is we don't think the Chinese regulator will allow us to operate in China, and at least not now. We don't have great relationships with China. Um, but, and there's other countries. North Korea isn't going to let us operate in North Korea. But most regulators, when we talk to them, they go, how soon can you have this in our country? And the insight here is the regulators see this as ubiquitous connectivity to their people is will save lives and change lives. They've been beating up mobile network operators for decades and begging them and pleading them and sometimes bribing them, or bribe's a strong word, subsidizing them, paying them to extend connectivity. So it's a hard problem, and the regulators are, in many cases, trying to bring public benefits of connectivity to all their people, and Link has solved that problem. So in some, a lot of cases, the regulators are be quickly become our biggest advocates. But you got to build trust with them. You got to keep your word. You got to do what you said you're going to do and then deliver. Excellent. Yeah, I think there's for suppliers out there listening, there's two really important bits of advice that if you are offering a service, that, you know, to paraphrase some of what you've said, Charles, but if you are offering a service that is in line with the kind of national priorities of a country, you will, you should find it easier to gain adoption in that country. And similarly with regulators, I've had a lot of discussions with people talking about different aspects of regulations, satellite licenses, launch licenses, ground station licenses and connectivity. The common themes are open, honest and early communication with the regulators. And Absolutely. In, in fact, you just pointed at something that's very important for space entrepreneurs. There's a lot of brilliant, technically brilliant space entrepreneurs, they have something they want to build. They make I see very often many flaws that these brilliant people could learn. One is just because you have a great technical solution doesn't mean anybody wants it. Try to start with a problem first and then figure out how you solve the problem. Do it the other way around. If you're putting the cart before the horse, find the problem first. The second thing and then is politics always wins. Right? You cannot get away from politics in the space industry. It is all regulated. It's under the Outer Space Treaty. There's policy and law and regulation. And you need to have somebody on your team who understands this because you can waste a lot of time trying to design and develop a certain type of gadget that will never pass muster with the regulators. I just I pick, pick on something. I just, there was a b- balloon rockets, right? A lot of people have tried balloon rockets. It's a huge regulatory nightmare. Regulators don't want rockets floating around uncontrolled in their airspace that could just go off course and and then drop on some town, 
right? They just like, that's their nightmare. You're just not, I just think that's a regulatory nightmare. So think about one of the things you need to think about when you're getting into business is whether the regulatory and how they're going to react and whether they'll support it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if it's something new, because you'll have regulators without precedent to rely on, without experience. And so, yeah, you need to early, early communication, be honest about it. So that's great. Thank you. Uh, I think that really leads into my next question. So uh, Link is, you've mentioned a few of uh, aspects of Link's story from a business point of view, discussing the focus on a large problem with a big addressable market, a problem that can be solved, a problem with where customers are used to paying for a service. And it's, you're in some ways, Link's a really interesting case study in how to build and scale a commercially focused business. And you've mentioned that you were always focused, or for a lot of your career, you were focused on the commercial aspect of space. So I wondered if you could share any other lessons or insights on the process and maybe mention what you think you've got right in the business development, maybe some things that haven't gone so well, just for our listeners out there. Wonderful. So I'm happy to share some insights with the audience. I've been doing commercial space for over 30 years, and I took the benefit of many failures and lessons learned over my career and uh, applied that to what created Link. Let me share some thoughts. So first of all, like my prior start was Nanorack, which spun out of a company called Constellation Services that had multiple failures. And Nanorack would leverage the emerging nanosat industry, which was used to be called CubeSats. But that was the original insight is that at some point, thinking like Clayton Christensen, the technology for CubeSats or nanosats is going to be good enough that you could solve real problems. So I started with that insight. This is an inflection point. It was created by Moore's Law. Moore's Law finally caught up to space and satellites. And inflection points create great opportunity. So that was the first insight. So I, this, and so what I'm about to describe is a process that anybody in this audience can repeat, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to share some insights and key principles that you could take advantage for yourself. So first is find something that creates opportunity, an inflection point. Second, find a big problem in the industry. So I was looking at what is the, what's the killer app for small satellites? I started looking at that, created by this inflection point in Moore's Law, and the onset of low-cost launch, but it was really more Moore's Law. It was the inflection point. Then low-cost launch even is another inflection point that everybody here should be thinking about. Like, with Starship, right? That's another inflection point once Starship is proven. It's not if, it's when. Uh, so sat, the next insight I had is satellite communications by far the biggest opportunity in the satellite industry. Satellite communications is 10 times bigger than remote sensing as a satellite. So I just decided focus on communications. I'd spent a lot of time with a team for a couple years looking at various opportunities. It's, and it's a multi-trillion dollar industry, communications. One subset of communications is mobile wireless. There's cable and fixed wireless and other things, but mobile wireless is a trillion dollar industry just on its own. So we then focus on that. And then the third thing insight that I did is most people, and if you study Clayton Christensen's theories of disruptive innovation, he'll talk. Most people try to do lower cost versions of what things they already know, Right. Now, planet was lower cost remote sensing, and you can put up enough that you can line scan the planet every day. Great, great idea. But there's only so many startups you can do or lower cost versions of what you already know. 
I actually liked, and Peter Thiel actually said it best in Zero to One, is finding secrets. So I was looking for what I call the now call the VisiCalc of satellites. And what I mean by that is back in the 1970s, the, there was a huge inflection point called personal computers. Uh, Apple IIs were coming off the assembly line in 1977 by tens of thousands a month, right? But these killer apps didn't come till later. So VisiCalc is one of those. Came, it was invented two years later, 1979, the first spreadsheet. And nobody done a spreadsheet before. It's a whole new use case for the, the personal computer user that what just hadn't been around. And so I was like, let's find the thing that's a whole new use case of, that solves a problem for people by this inflection point for small satellites. Now, it took us several years, and we came up on sat the phone, but it was really a discovery process. So we, I, you can say we invented a lot of this, but in a lot of ways, we discovered it. We discovered that conventional wisdom was wrong, that you could connect a satellite directly to a standard phone both ways, right? And so that is what you want to look for. You want to find something where conventional wisdom is wrong. And this is the hard part. Someone's going to tell you that can't be done. You really need to go to first principles about is that true? You need to challenge everything until you fundamentally understand it from first principles. So, and so in 19, I'm sorry, in 2014, late 2014, I had one of my team come to me and say, hey, can you connect a satellite direct to phone? This would be really cool. You you could do lots of things. It'd be very valuable. And one of my lead technical team, he's now co-founder with me, Ty Spidell, he said, there's no way you can connect a satellite to a phone. And so this is the key insight. You need to challenge that if it's not obvious from first principles. So I said, why not? And Ty grumbled at me and he said, I'll go do the link budget. I'll show you. Now, one of the other great things that enabled this, Ty is a great satellite engineer, but he knew nothing about mobile phones. But in today's world, that you can find this all on the internet. So he would get on the internet, find all the link margin inputs for mobile phones that he needed to do the link budget and he put together and he came back next week this is the insight is like there's huge amounts of information in the world about everything connecting the dots is the hard part ty connected the dots and he came back and he said i was wrong we can connect a satellite two ways to a mobile phone now anybody else here can do the same thing right this process it took us a couple years to find this we were just i we were just the ones to find it first right? And that you can connect the satellite directly to a phone. Now, we kept at this process. This, the next focus on this discovery process is like, okay, you can connect a satellite to a phone both ways, but then you, know, so you have to add software in the phone. You need to add your radio chip in the phone. And I just held fast to, no, those are too hard. We're like, we're going to hold true to find no change to the phone. Can that be done? I didn't know it could be done. It took us two years how to figure out how to do it. And what we had, we finally figured out you could do spectrum sharing with the existing radio chips and phone, how that would be done. That was against conventional wisdom too. People said, oh, you can't do that. All the spectrum regulatory experts said, oh, you're not allowed to do that. Okay, you're not allowed, but that's not written in the laws of the universe. I can persuade regulators to 
if the, you know, as long as we can't do harmful interference, you go to first principles of space policy and law and regulatory, at first principles, it says show you don't cause harmful interference, which a lot of experts forget about. They don't know policy and law well enough. So this is why you, so you need to have somebody in your team that understands it deeply because you might miss out an opportunity if you don't understand policy and law. And then the third thing is tie then invented how you, the Doppler shift and time delay solutions I described a little while earlier. And that was the third breakthrough that was against conventional wisdom. And so you could do this without any phone. So this process can be duplicated by anybody on this show that's listening to this. It can be replicated by another entrepreneur and it will be by some. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Some really interesting insights there. I love the fact that one of your core capabilities early on was developed as a result of Ty trying to prove that it couldn't be done. That's fantastic. (laughs) So um, yeah, it just shows the, the balance needed in companies as well. People who can disprove hypotheses and people who... You need to go to first principles, right? So I learned constantly everybody. It's like the person who really proved this to everybody and going to first principles best, better than anybody is Elon, right? I, there's a saying that Steve Jobs loved is uh, talked about uh, paraphrasing Van Gogh that great artists steal, right? So I think great entrepreneurs look everywhere for trying to get smarter. All the world, you have to assume you're messing up and you don't know what you don't know and you have to constantly be learning. You need to be a learning machine. And once you think it, you know it all, you're dead. You need to, you have to take on that. You, there's the tip of the iceberg and you need to constantly be learning about and finding what you don't know. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. It's great advice. And following on from this, now Sat Search, we're always very interested in thoughts and insights on the state of the global supply chain itself today. Just for disclosure to listeners, we have helped some various engineers at Link find new products and suppliers on, on the Satsus marketplace. And with the speed and the scale that Link is trying to achieve, as far as I understand, I would expect that your supply chain management is something you have to plan and manage pretty carefully. I wonder if you could share any experiences in this area. Absolutely. So we have we thought deeply about our supply chain strategy, and we have a unique perspective. Well, I wouldn't say unique. It's a different perspective. But supply chain is critical. It's a huge risk. It's a huge support source of cost, but also schedule risk and technical risk. And ev- everybody on, in this, on listening to this is parts come and go. They go and they cre- create schedule risk. It creates technical risk. I'm sure they have problems with customers or their suppliers who are causing this risk. So we're constantly working on this and sensitive to this. We just, we've had battery chargers, chips come and go. We have to you know, totally redesign the battery chargers. So this is our thing. So first of all, from our thoughts here, and this comes goes back to first principles, is from a supply chain perspective. To build this system, For our first insight is everybody wants broadband everywhere, voice and data, everything you're on your phone, you want to do it everywhere. So our whole strategy is to build out to that. That's the long-term vision. We're going to get there step by step. We're going to crawl, walk, run there. But we need to start with the end in mind, right? That's where we're getting to. So if you do the work, we need to build 5,000 satellites or more, right? So we've applied for 5,000 satellites. 
with through the ITU, and that's our end state that we're designing to. That means mass-producing satellites. We're planning to build and launch 200 satellites a month once we ramp up production of our existing design. So it's like, how do you get there? The first insight, if you know the satellite industry, most most of the suppliers in the industry are not set up for mass production of satellites. This is a supply chain issue. And so the next thought was, and there's multiple ways of doing this. One was what OneWeb did with Airbus and outsourced the satellite production. Another is what Planet and SpaceX did. They vertically integrated. And we looked at both. And so we haven't 100% made it, but we think there's a lot of advantages of vertical integration of at least integrating the satellites and maybe even producing some of the subsystems ourselves. And and the insight here is I would have to pay somebody. I'd have to raise a ton of investor capital and then go pay somebody to build a capability and learn how to mass produce a subsystem. If I'm going to do that, maybe I should have a bias to myself how to do it, right? Rather than paying someone else how to do the R&D and scaling up. and And that creates a lot of risk to us. So we have a bias to vertically integrating this. We have a bias using COTS parts that are mass-produced and finding low-cost ways to do things. And so if a battery charger chip is out, it's because there's another battery charger chip on the market and you can redesign the, the battery charger to use the new chip. And so you, you create mitigate supply chain risk there. If you leverage commercial parts and you vertically integrate, you can... The bill of materials, looking, going across the industry, we didn't just jump to vertically integrated. We talked to a lot of people and have given people the opportunity to win our business. With satellites themselves, we, we, got, we had lots of quotes on this. They, based on the research for our existing satellite, it's pretty clear that the vendors out there would charge us about $10 million to build our small satellites, which is a brand new design. It's a one by one meter by about 15 centimeter phase array antenna satellite system and probably $10 million. But our bill of materials for that is about slightly under $200,000. And so we have deep insights in what is the most expensive parts of the satellite because we started building them ourselves because we decided we need to be on a path either to be a very good customer of satellites or to build and integrate our own. And so we've lowered a lot of the cost. It gives a lot of flexibility, but we still buy a lot of parts and some subsystems from other from areas around the world. And we're going to need a very supportive supply chain to get, to get to mass production of 200 a month. There's four reaction wheels on every satellite. So one of the insights here, we brought reaction wheels in-house. And our, the quotes on reaction wheels for our needs were about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a wheel. And we figured out how we can build the wheels for about $1,000 a wheel, right? And we've proven that out. And we brought batteries in-house. For, for batteries, about $15,000 a battery, we got the cost of batteries under $100,000. Now, we, buy, we just buy many more things at the component level than at the integrated subsystem level. And so we look across that. Now there's some, there's a variety of subsystems where we are out purchasing. We're currently buying thrusters 
from Don Aerospace that was announced. Don announced that. We did an RFP of 29 different thruster companies in the world. Some of your audience probably responded. I think we had 18 or 19 companies respond to our RFP. And Don was the best. So we selected Don Aerospace. We will do a make versus buy analysis across all the subsystems. And the answers could change over time, right? So who knows what somebody might stand up something that really meets our needs and and does a great job and we become a customer. Excellent. Oh, that was, uh, yeah. Thank you for being so open about the supply chain and what you've gone through there. Like, I think that's great. Uh, yeah, the make versus buy decision is a key one for anybody at the satellite level. Yeah, really interested to hear that from you. Thank you. I've, I think we can just about wrap up, Charles, in a sec. I think uh, you've shared some really useful information for our readers here. I just wondered finally if you could just share a bit about your about the future here, the near future, what your expectations are for the to bring it back to the topic to the for the Satophone sector and what changes do you see the industry going through and what are you most excited about at Link for the future? The Satophone sector is now very excited. A few years ago everybody thought we were crazy, right? Oh, you can't do that. And we that was great because until we pr- provided empirical proof around the world that you could do it. And that happened about a little over a year ago. And now everybody's jumping in saying, me too. So we're the category creator. We invented this category. We're the world's only proven satellite direct standard phone operator. We have the patents. We have the world's only commercial license. We have the world's only three commercial satellite direct cell towers in space that connect to standard phones. But there's a bunch of people jumping in, and we knew this was going to happen. So this is a really exciting sector. Because it solves such a big problem, and I think everybody listening, this is an opportunity to be on somebody's team, if not more than one team. This is going to grow to be the largest category in satellite. Let me say that again. This is going to grow to be the largest category in satellite. And it goes back to what I said earlier. It solves a problem for billions of people. And it's the, there's three categories of services that solve a problem for satellite services for billions of people. The other two are weather and GPS, and nobody pays for those. This is the one multi-billion dollar customer service that uses satellite services that people will pay for, right? And so it is going to grow to be the biggest category in satellite. And so the insight here is Link is going to start providing commercial services later this year. We believe we have a two to three year head start before anybody else starts providing commercial services. We think it's two to three years before anybody who we take seriously actually tests satellite direct-to-phone. And then it'll be another year after that where they're operational. Right. And this is a exciting category. There's not going to be, there's going to be multiple winners. Link is not going to be the only winner. We, yes, we have a couple year head start and that's great for us. But there, the mobile wireless industry doesn't like monopolies. M&Os will make sure there are competitors, right? Apple invented the smartphone, right? What did the M&Os do? They made sure there's a competitor. They brought Android on so quick right, to make sure that Apple had no monopoly over the M&Os, that, you know, that if you look across the industry, it's like base stations, right? You got Huawei, Ericsson, and Nokia, no, no monopoly. 
If you look at cell towers in your country, they have multiple competitors. In the United States, it's Crown Castle and American Tower who beat each other up for getting M&O business. So they will make sure there's at least two, maybe there's three winners. And so that's how I see this industry playing out. There's going to be two to three winners. And another structure thing, going back to your question, is there's some companies that are getting into low data rate messaging in the near term. But those won't be successful over the long term. When you bring on the much higher data rate services that allow you to do broadband and voice everywhere directly to your phone, those low data rate services will melt away. So they're, they're cool and innovative. But going back to one of the advantages of looking at this going back six, seven years is, yes, you can do a cool hack with existing hardware that's already in space, but it's very limited. This goes back to the insight that you've probably heard many times, form follows function, right? In those cases, they had function, had form, followed form. The form was existing satellites in space, and they said, what can we do with that? You can do some things, but it's very limited, right? And, and those are hacks, but, and they'll be cool for a few years, but once the follow-on systems come on, and this goes back to what I said very early, dropping the satellites in low LEO, where you get much more speed and much more capacity for every unit of spectrum, is how you get broadband direct-to-phone everywhere on the planet. If you're using geo or high LEO, you know, those, those systems don't work very much longer. They'll, they're a short-term Band-Aid. And they'll be good money for those companies, but they don't. They get disrupted by the company that can get to the big broadband low Leo system first. Brilliant, thank you, Charles. I think that's a great place to wrap up. I'm, yeah, would like to say thank you very much for sharing all those great insights with us, being so open about Link's business and supply chain and the history and development. And I think it's, it's fascinating. You've got obviously a very clear story to tell as a business, and uh, yeah, from. Satsurch aside, we would like to wish you best of luck moving forward and thank you again. Thank you, Hal, and I look forward to hearing from your audience. And hopefully this is takes a village to connect the world. And I look forward to to being part of this service with everybody, you know, in the industry helping us bring this to every, to several billion people. Excellent. Thank you. And yeah, to all our listeners out there, thank you very much for spending time with us today on the Space Industry Podcast. We'll share more information and some links and resources about Link in the uh, in the show notes. And uh, if you have any questions for the company, there'll be a way, a way, to, way to direct them to them as well. I hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did. I feel like there's a whole load more different topics we could talk about. But yeah, just would say thank you again, Charles, and thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Space Industry by SatSearch. I hope you enjoyed today's story about one of the companies taking us into orbit. We'll be back soon with more in-depth, behind-the-scenes insights from private space businesses. In the meantime, you can go to satsearch.com for more information on the space industry today, or find us on social media if you have any questions or comments. To stay up to date, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and you can also get each podcast on demand on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Play Store, or whichever podcast service you typically use. 